I want to welcome back friend of the show and a man who spent 30 years in newspaper journalism. He is now the senior fellow of health policy at the Empire Center. At the Empire Center, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Hammond, uh, Mr. Hammond, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you for giving us some of your time again. Uh, when we talked to you back in uh, early September, we discussed your FOIL request for uh, nursing home data. Uh, much has come to light since then. Uh, I think uh, you get lost in the discussion a little bit when uh, a lot of people try to give credit to the attorney general here, but I feel like it was your freedom of information request that actually kind of started the whole uh, snowball effect here. You want to touch base a little bit on what happened with the uh, freedom of information request before we start? I mean, yeah, I, mean, it's, uh, I filed it back in August. That was the day the commissioner testified before the legislature and, and, um, and didn't answer their questions about what was going on in nursing homes. Um, and I guess when I first filed it, I thought it was going to be mostly symbolic because FOIL requests usually take a long time to unfold. The health department usually stalls. And I figured by the time they released it to me, they would have made it public. I didn't think I didn't think they were going to sit on that information as long as they did. But I mean, to my amazement, they continued stalling to the point, like to the point where we uh, we appealed one of their decisions. We filed a lawsuit, and we waited for months to get a ruling from the judge, and they still hadn't released it. And if you if you think about what happened during that time. I filed it in August. We had a presidential election and a legislative election in November um, where it might have been relevant to know the data that they were withholding. But also it gave the governor lots of opportunities when, you know, when the world's attention was focused somewhere else where he could slip this data out and maybe it wouldn't have gotten that many headlines. Uh, then we went through the holiday season when we had a second wave of coronavirus in nursing homes and a second wave of residents dying. It might have been useful to have that data before that second wave happened. But also, you know, you had the holidays, a, a traditional time for dumping bad news, you know, when people are, are distracted by other stuff. Then you had the, the, the insurrection on January 6th, another great opportunity for the state to slip out the bad news. You had the inauguration. You had all these events happening, and they were still sitting on the data. They showed no sign of ever releasing the data until, well, I mean, the attorney general did begin to, um, to shake things loose. Um, her report came out, and almost right away the health commissioner responded by giving – basically one data point. He gave the grand total of all nursing home residents who had died as of that moment in time, including those who had died in hospitals, which the state had previously been withholding. And so the grand total went up by about 4,000. But we still didn't have when and where those people died, which is absolutely basic information that you need if you're going to do any serious analysis. And that's what we had requested. And so about a week later is when the judge issued a ruling. And that's when that's when finally the health department actually had to release the data. Instead of like just putting out 
a grand total number because they thought it was politically useful to do that on a particular day. They had to tell us the whole picture. Um, the ruling was on the 3rd of February. Judge gave the, the state essentially a week to actually send us the data. That, that deadline was February 10th. And if you remember, that was the day that Melissa DeRosa and Commissioner Zucker were meeting with members of the legislature. And basically, it was because their time had run out. The data was coming out. The data that they had been specifically withholding from the legislature was coming out. And so they felt like just in order to maintain a, the minimal level of diplomacy with the legislature, they had to give it to the legislature five minutes before they gave it to us. And so that that meeting became its own controversy, right, because of the things Melissa DeRosa said um, by way of excusing the delay. She said, well, you have to understand we were dealing with Donald Trump and he was he was looking to, to take shots at us and we didn't get, want to give him ammunition. Um, it wasn't a very convincing excuse, but it was astonishing because it was so nakedly political and it was absolutely no justification for uh, for withholding data. So, yeah, I feel like the that this is a pretty rare situation. It, it was a pretty ordinary FOIL request. One advantage we had was that we could afford a lawyer. We had a lawyer. The Government Justice Center served as our lawyer. Most people just have to wait until the state decides they're willing to give you the data. We were able to force the issue in court. It took months. But it actually made a difference in this case because it forced the governor out of his defensive shell and it forced him to make excuses, which exposed further falsehoods on his part. So it, I feel like it did make a difference. I think you're right. Some, it doesn't always get mentioned in the, in the news coverage, and that drives me a little bit crazy. But I think a lot of people understand, and the legislature and, and elsewhere understand, the importance that the, the FOIL case played in this in this situation. Yeah, that's good to hear, because like I said, I think it did play a pivotal role, and I think it if it didn't, I mean, obviously they delayed as long as they could, but if it, it, it was the reason why everything came to a head, I, I truly believe that. So if there's ever a way that we can get a, uh, uh, a way to name a street out in front of the Albany Capitol with uh, Hammond Boulevard, I would love to do that someday. So I appreciate your efforts. Um, let, let's, let's switch a little bit uh, uh, to the, the Greater New York Hospital Association. Um, they're kind of in the news again there. You kind of brought up something that's, that's new here. This, uh, we'll get to this pay and pursue uh, uh, piece uh, in the budget here uh, in a second. Uh, they, they probably are most well known, I think, from this part of the, or the role they played in the nursing home order and the legal immunity that followed. Um, do you want to touch on that a little bit? So, like, I mean, I, I don't know to what degree they played a role in that March 25th order, um, but obviously, their the, the legal immunity that was granted to uh, many people within that association following or, or during this COVID pandemic seem to kind of get a lot of people uh, up in arms. So the Greater New York Hospital Association is is probably one of the most powerful interest groups in Albany. Um, they kind of jockey back and forth with the teachers unions for, for that title, depending on what issue is, is hot at the moment. 
Um, they they represent um, a lot of hospitals. I don't know the exact number, but they represent, I would say, the majority of hospitals in New York State. They used to be concentrated in the New York City area, but they've kind of expanded out from there. They represent a lot of upstate facilities now. They also represent hospitals in a bunch of surrounding states, like Rhode Island and Connecticut and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Um, and so they've become a national player as well. And they have a long history of making things happen in Albany to their own for their own interests. They have an alliance with 1199, which is a formidable lobbying force in its own right. And so when the two of them get together, as they usually do, it, it you know, resistance is futile. Yeah. It's, it's um, they're so in this case, I mean, most of that happens kind of behind the scenes. So they're well known around Albany. They're probably not a household name. Um, but in this case, a reporter asked me recently, what was their role in the pandemic? And I started, I hadn't really made a list. <laughs> but if you look at a, almost every crucial step of the process, they were there. Um so you mentioned the March 25th order from the health department um, ordering nursing homes to accept COVID positive patients from hospitals. The Greater New York Hospital Association has confirmed on the record that that was their idea. Um, they went to the governor's office. If you remember, the governor was desperately trying to create hospital space. He he had projections telling him that the the first wave was going to involve so many people it was going to com- completely swamp our total hospital capacity statewide and certainly in the New York City area would have com- would have been beyond overwhelmed if those numbers had come true they didn't come true i think they were it was reasonable to believe that was a risk at the time so the the the, the governor prudently was was preparing for that possibility and he was trying to create as much space as possible. He was putting a lot of pressure on hospitals. And so they were being asked to set up beds in their cafeterias and they were being asked to find vacant space where they could, you know, set up temporary hospitals. The the Army Corps of Engineers was building a temporary hospital at Javits. And so in that context, Greater New York came to the governor and said, hey, listen, we have a cohort of patients in our in our beds, they're they had coronavirus. They've stabilized. It's kind of interesting to think about this because this was in late March. It was very early in the pandemic, and they already had thousands of people who had recovered from the coronavirus and were occupying beds. They needed a nursing home because the experience of coronavirus had left them you know, incapable of living on their own. They were they were probably elderly and frail people to begin with. And the nursing homes didn't want them. And so Greater New York went to the governor and said, listen, you've got to help us with this. If you want space in the hospitals, here's a way to create space in hospitals. And evidently, the governor's office accepted their suggestion, referred it to the health department, and the health department issued their guidance. Um, one thing they didn't do was ask the nursing homes what they thought about this. So the, the nursing homes have, have also said on the record they did not know this order was coming. If they had known, they would have – the record is pretty clear. They would have said, don't do this. This is crazy. You're going to kill people because, you know, nursing home organizations had said that publicly even before the order was issued. 
Another thing that might have happened is the nursing homes might have said, um, here's a better way of handling these patients. You know, we, we could set up a, a separate wing or we could set up a COVID-only facility, or maybe you could put them in Javits, or maybe you could send them to the hospital ship, you know, the Navy hospital ship. Right. That conversation didn't happen. Um, the governor took the advice of Greater New York, instituted the policy, and thousands of positive patients were shipped into nursing homes against the nursing home's um, better judgment in some cases. And I think it's pretty clear. I don't think that was the sole cause of of why people got sick and died in nursing homes, but it was a contributing factor. Yeah, and I think that's So that's one thing are. they yeah. did. Um, another thing they did was that it was their idea to 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 have the state grant them live, uh, protection from lawsuits. Um, originally, their proposal would have applied just to hospitals. At some point in the process, it was expanded to cover nursing homes. Um, uh, in fact, it was expanded to cover pretty much all healthcare providers. I actually thought there was a logic to doing that. You don't want in a crisis like that, you don't want people practicing defensive medicine. You, they may need to do things that under ordinary circumstances would get them sued, but you want them to do it because it's important for the public health. Again, though, they didn't seek any outside input. They put the language in a budget bill. They pressured the legislature to accept it. It was added at the last moment. There was no chance for debate. A lot of the people, a lot of the legislators who voted on it didn't even know it was in there. Um, they, they had no real input into that. And it might have been written more narrowly and more carefully if there had been real debate. But again, Greater New York, they had the ear of the governor. Um, uh, another thing that you heard, and this is a little harder to put fingerprints on, but the Cuomo administration definitely prioritized hospitals for PPE. When there was a shortage, the hospitals were sent PPE. They were given kind of first priority. Um, nursing homes were not a high priority in that scale of things. Um, and so it, I suspect the greater New York played a role in that. They were, they were, you know, like I say, they had the governor's ear, but it's hard to put fingerprints on that. Later on, when the governor was timed to roll out the vaccinations, the, the, uh, the, the immunization program, the state had a plan for doing that. The counties had plans for doing that. They had facilities identified. They had personnel identified. They had kind of action plans and preparations. Uh, and they were waiting for the governor to activate that when the vaccines became available. But instead, the governor gave the job to the hospitals. And that one, I think, did come from greater New York. So, and, and ended up being um, really jumbled and ineffective rollout at the start, partly because it was, it was being handled by people who hadn't planned for it and who weren't really set up for it. And so, so it's, it's, I was gonna say, it seems like this greater New York hospital association has quite the influence um, over Albany, the governor's uh, administration. I'd like to take you back a little bit to one of your articles from 2018, where you talk, this is the, uh, the, where the, the the Catholic Church had a, uh, uh, a health care plan that was uh, being sold to a, a private company, Centene. Is that how you pronounce the company? Um, Centene. And so there was this, I, I don't even know if this is legal, but so did Cuomo, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems as though Cuomo basically said, we're not going to allow you to sell that, 
your your healthcare plan uh, unless you give us a cut of the sale. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And is yeah, that more or less. is that at all legal? I mean, I wondered about it at the time. I, it, in order to to raise that question, the bishops would have had to file suit and go to court, and they weren't inclined to do that. Okay. Um, the state probably it would have been it would have been an interesting case. the The governor's office said there was precedent for doing it because when Empire Blue Cross um, converted to for profit they ended up turning over a lot of you know, billions of dollars to the state. That was, a, it was a little bit different situation legally and otherwise, um, you know, had the governor not intervened, the bishops would have been allowed to put the proceeds into a foundation, all, all of the proceeds as it ended up, they ended up putting probably most of the proceeds went into the foundation, but they had to give the state over $2 billion dollars. And it turned out, we didn't know it at the time, but it turned out that this was part of an agreement that the governor had with the Greater New York Hospital Association or, or, or members of the Greater New York. Um, they had a labor contract they needed to settle with 1199. And they wanted the state to help finance that. They wanted a Medicaid rate increase to help finance that. Um, so he, he obtained this money, he put it in this kind of slush fund that could be spent on pretty much anything he wanted that was healthcare related. That was in the spring. In the summer, Greater New York donated $1 million to the Democratic Party. And they did it uh, through the so-called housekeeping account, yeah, another slush which fund. is <laughs> kind of soft money. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't get reported the way they did it, it wouldn't be reported until after the election. So no one knew they had donated this million dollars. And then in late October, like a week before election day, the governor announces, okay, I'm giving hospitals a rate increase. He also gave a rate increase to nursing homes. Um, so, uh, and by the way, the over the summer, the, the hospitals and their union negotiated the contract that would use that money. So, yeah, that was an extraordinary thing for him to do to, it was also, I mean, on a policy level, it was really not good on a, uh, first of all, let's say he had a right to that money from the bishops. It was a one shot. He was not going to be an ongoing source of revenue. Using it to finance a rate increase in Medicaid is crazy. I mean, the, the money's going to run out and the rates are going to be what they are. Um, and also, uh, it, we later found out that Medicaid was running a deficit at that time. It was it was way over budget. He should have been cutting costs, not increasing them. So, yeah, that 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 was that was a prime example of the level of influence that the hospitals have in Albany. I mean, at some level, you would expect hospitals to be influential. They're big businesses. They employ lots of people. They provide this really important service. They have, there's one of them in almost every large community in the state. And so every politician in the state has a hospital they care about and want to see thrive. So when they come to Albany, they come as a united force, generally speaking. It's hard to resist when they say we need we need your help, otherwise the health care of your constituents is going to suffer. It's very hard for them to say no. 
politically. Um, they're also, they're, you know, they have lots of wealthy employees. Doctors are some of the wealthiest people in our society. Um, their board members tend to have all the most prominent businessmen and businesswomen in a community. So they're going to be influential no matter what, but they, they are super skilled at leveraging those assets. And they also, they, in addition to whatever membership fees they charge, they run these businesses that generate revenue for the association itself which the association deploys in the form of campaign contributions. They're one of the biggest donors, and they donate to all members of all parties and all the party committees. And, you know, they, they play favorites. The majorities get more. But um, so they, they play the system very, very well and very skillfully. How, uh, how untenable is New York's Medicaid spending right now? I mean, it's, it was, well, I mean, here's the thing. They're about to raise taxes through the roof. Um, so they may be able, if, you know, if that works out, they may be able to afford the level of spending they've already got. I mean, they are, we have the most expensive Medicaid program in the country on a per capita basis. Um, it covers an unusually large number of people. It provides an unusually rich amount of benefits. And then the cost per beneficiary is also high because we use it to allow things that aren't really about providing health care have kind of filtered into the Medicaid program. My favorite example is doctors don't like the, the um, malpractice fees they have to pay, the premiums. They're high, and and I sympathize with them. Our our tort system in New York is is, is terrible, and it's unusually expensive. But the answer to that would be to fix the malpractice system. Instead, Medicaid subsidizes malpractice fees. It it pays a portion of the fees for doctors who, as I said before, they're some of the wealthiest people in the state. What is what is this, the the state doing subsidizing? insurance for some of its wealthiest residents. Um, and so there's things like that that and, and and as I explained before, they use Medicaid to finance the labor contract. Uh, I mean eleven ninety nine represents kind of working class people in the healthcare system. They deserve decent pay, but I don't think it's the med it's Medicaid's job to, to provide that for them. It's the hospital's job. The hospitals are big, wealthy organizations, and they should they should be able to finance their own labor. That makes logical sense. Uh, if I could shift gears on you, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on how New York State is doing as far as vaccine rollout, uh, percentage of usage, efficiency, who's getting it, how is how does New York stack up? <laughs> I tried to pay really close attention to this earlier and it was extremely frustrating because the, the data we were getting from different sources wasn't consistent and it was fragmented. I mean, more recently it's gotten better. And I, and I looked at it a little bit uh, just, I think yesterday. And one thing that really stood out to me is overall we're doing about average uh, in terms of, I guess there's different ways of measuring. It's how many people have gotten one shot, 
how many people have gotten both shots, and then different age groups. Um, and so I'm not exactly on top of this, but one thing I did see is that for the over 18 population, we were a little bit ahead of the national average. Um, the national average is that a little over a third um, of the population has gotten at least one shot, and we were a couple points over that. For the over 65 population, we were about six points behind the average. So the national average is, you know, three quarters of people over 65 have had at least one shot. And in New York, it's, you know, it's like two thirds. So that, um, first of all, it's backwards, right? You know, you the, the over 65 population should be at the front of the line, uh, I'm, and technically they were at the front of the line. I, I mean, at one point we were prioritizing people over 70, and then it went down to 65, I think. Uh, it's it's moved. I mean, right, uh, right now I think it's down to 50, and soon it will be down to 30, and then in early April it will be down to 16. So I think that's part of the problem is, those over 65 people tend to not be internet savvy. They, um, and they may also, the people who haven't gotten their shots yet may also tend to be from those communities that are uh, afraid of the, of the, of the vaccine or suspicious of the vaccine. And that includes, um, uh, members of minority groups, but also, portions of the Republican Party. It's kind of a, a, a hodgepodge of people who are don't, leery of the don't, vaccine. Don't forget the crazy libertarians. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, so, those, but, but uh, one obstacle is they're not going to be really good about finding an appointment because it, it requires persistence and it requires an understanding of how to work a computer. Um, or a lot of patients to sit on the phone. It's a bewildering process. I've gone through it on behalf of my mother, but also on my own behalf. And once you get the hang of it, you can figure it out. You still need a certain amount of luck and persistence. People over 65 maybe don't have that advantage. And they're now in competition with a whole bunch of younger people who do have those skills. And I think that may explain why, you know, our system is seems to be working well overall. It's ahead of the curve for the whole adult population, but it's not serving the, the most vulnerable group as well. Exactly why that is, you know, I think I've, I just gave you my theory. I couldn't swear to that because, you know, I don't think anybody's done any comprehensive study. All right. And so, so I think so, it is true. It is true that uh, black and, and brown people have been vaccinated at lower rates than white people. And they tend to they tend to live in um, lower income communities. Maybe they have poor access to health care. Maybe they're more uh, suspicious of the vaccine. Maybe they're just too busy to to take time out for an appointment. All of those things kind of pile up and and. Um, so the, the vaccine distribution overall has been uh, comparable to the rest of the country, maybe even better. 
in terms of the total population, but it's it's falling down on some of the vulnerable groups. Okay, so let, let's fast forward back and, uh, uh, and talk again about the the Greater New York Hospital Association and the the, the latest piece of uh, uh, addition to the budget. Uh, affectionately referred to as pay and pursue. Uh, this is a way to what, expedite payments to the hospitals uh, first and foremost, and then uh, let everybody else fight for the rest. Uh, you want to explain a little bit about how this uh, pay and pursue works? Yeah, this is actually a pretty wonky thing that, you know, maybe I think it's getting more attention than it otherwise would have because it involves greater New York and, their recent history with the pandemic. Um, it's about, yeah, it's about the rules surrounding paying insurance claims for hospital care. Right now, insurers have the opportunity and, and can even require their members to get prior authorization before getting surgery, say, at a hospital. If it's not an emergency, you have to check with your insurer before you go under the knife or, or even get other procedures that may not involve surgery. And the insurance company does what's called utilization review. And they're checking to make sure that the procedure you're getting is medically necessary, which is how insurance is written. It says we will pay for medically necessary stuff. And so this is a basic function of insurance is to screen claims to make sure they're medically necessary. And part of that is also they may say, look, you're about to get a mammogram. A mammogram at a hospital costs us two times as much as a mammogram at a lab. We want you to go to the lab. And so they would, they would deny the claim in advance. They would say, you can't get your mammogram at that hospital. You have to go somewhere else. Or you can't get your um, colonoscopy at that hospital. You should go to this other facility that's cheaper. That's that. That is the way the system works right now. And there's a there's a an appeal process. If the insurance, if the hospital doesn't like it, or if the patient doesn't like it, they can appeal. And you know, ultimately, a third party looks at it and decides what's reasonable. So that's how the system works now. The hospitals don't like it. They feel like, first of all, it means that a lot of their claims get denied. But also they claim that, it, I mean, and I think with some reason, they say it, it creates a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy and red tape for them to deal with. It's an expense on their balance sheet. So their proposal is just have the insurance company pay the claim. Whatever we tell, whatever we send them, have them pay us. And then if they find that it wasn't medically necessary, they should challenge it after the fact, after the money is already in our bank account. And the insurance companies are like, wait a minute, how does that make sense? You're, you're gonna, we're, we're going to have to fight to get our money back, money we shouldn't have paid you in the first place. And you're going to have the benefit of that money. And you, you will have already done the procedure. It'll be too late to pull that back. Um, so it's a, it's a squabble between two players in the healthcare system over money. I mean, that's, that is the bottom line. I think most people would be inclined to sympathize with the hospitals because hospitals give them care and insurers deny them care, right? That's like the stereotype. Sure. But the insurers are the ones who have to, they have to pay the bills. And in order to pay the bills, they have to collect premiums. And if the hospitals are, are 
you know, taking them to the cleaners, the premiums are going to have to go up. And we already have really high premiums in New York. So I think consume, and that's part of the reason you're seeing, um, in addition to health plans who oppose this, the businesses and labor unions oppose it because it means higher costs for their members. Um, so it's it this this is the kind of fight you wouldn't necessarily like if this was a standalone bill you would have the two sides would make their arguments there would be a debate there would be a vote but that's not how this is happening the governor has gone to the legislature and said we want this bill the greater new york hospitals want we want it added to the budget the budget is due thursday uh, is that right? April one is Thursday. Yep. He 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 proposed this to him like a week and a half ago. Um, he didn't put it in his original budget. He didn't put it in this in his thirty day amendments in February. His his Department of Financial Services hasn't sent over what's called a program bill, which is which is the vehicle for the governor to propose changes in law that aren't related to the budget. He just wants to take this pretty controversial issue with a lot of potential impact on employers, unions, hospitals, and consumers. He wants to just add it to the budget at the last minute so that it's part of a big package deal that that the individual legislators have to take it or leave it. Um, This is how the immunity deal was done last year. It was added at the last minute to a budget bill. So regardless of what you think about the substance of the proposal, whether you're on the side of the hospitals or the insurance companies, I think you should be really concerned about the process because the details of this thing are going to matter. And no one has seen those details yet, except for a few insiders um, who by the way, all of those insiders are getting campaign donations from the Greater New York Hospital Association. Yeah, it seems like the uh, uh, one hand washing the other, I guess. Um, uh, Mr. Hughesong, do you have any uh, uh, question here? Would you like to leave for Mr. Hammond? Yeah, just before we uh, before we let you go, Bill, I've I've heard some pushback when we bring this up about well why does it matter where the people died why does it matter if they died in a nursing home why why is this important so if you could take two three minutes and just speak to that uh, from a policy standpoint because that is your expertise why did this matter yeah actually I I mean I, it's interesting that people would bring that up because I really feel like that's a complete straw man argument from the governor that he's that um, he says we never misled you about how many people we people died. We, we were just counting them as hospital deaths instead of nursing home deaths. Nobody cares. Like, where a person dies is not the point. The point is, where did they get sick? Um, when they report hospital deaths, they give, they give it two ways. They say which county the hospital was in, but also which county the person lived in. You don't, you don't care. Like, like it, you know, if you look down in New York City, a lot of people died in Manhattan, but they lived in the Bronx or Queens. When we report about this, we don't say, look at all the people who died in Manhattan. We say, look at all the Bronx and Queens residents who died. And when it's a nursing home, the residents become super important because they don't, they, 
they spend almost all of their time at the residence. They don't commute to work. They don't get on the subway. They don't go to restaurants. They don't go to ball games. They don't, you know, the parties they have are going to happen within the nursing home. And this isn't just any home. It's a medical facility. They're surrounded by staff people who are supposed to be smart about infections and controlling infections. Their lives are, um, they're regulated by the state and they're financed almost entirely by the government. So when somebody gets sick in a nursing home, it's the nursing home's fault at some level, right? They failed to protect one of their residents. That's not this, you know, when when somebody gets sick out in the community, it might be their own fault because they weren't being careful enough. Or, you know, um, it's harder to pin down whose fault it is because they're moving around in the world. When somebody gets sick in a nursing home, you know what happened in the nursing home. Um, so... The idea that you shouldn't like you sh- you shouldn't care that thousands of nursing home residents died in hospitals and that wasn't reported to the public, that that is a complete red herring. It, it was absolutely relevant information to know how many people died who were residents of nursing homes, even if they didn't die in the nursing home. All right, so I think we covered a lot here. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover, or something that you want to make sure that we touch on a little bit more? Before we let you go, I mean, I always I, I like to make a pitch for public health. The, there, there's going to be a lot of pressure in Albany. Every every interest group that has any remote connection to healthcare, and even some who don't, are going to Albany and saying, "You need to give us more money because if if we had had more money, we could have prevented the pandemic, or we could have made the pandemic easier." The one part of the healthcare system that actually made the most difference is the public health system. It, these are mostly nameless, faceless people. They don't wear stethoscopes. They don't see patients. They don't bill insurance companies. They're, they're not part of the medical system at all. Their, their focus is populations, not individuals. They're the ones who, first of all, you know, track a virus when it's still in another country and they learn how it works and they pay attention to its um, chemical makeup and everything else. They are also the ones who develop the tests. They're the ones who know when it's time to restrict travel or to um, avoid large gatherings or to start wearing masks. They're the ones who are in charge of that stuff. It has nothing to do, like hospitals play very, little or no role in that stuff. They, they help with the surveillance because they, they can see when they're seeing a lot of sick people come into their emergency rooms. The part of the system that needs attention, that needs to work better the next time there's a pandemic, is the public health system. And we should really, um, they should go first. Like it, Before we think about pouring more money into libraries or hospitals, because of their whatever role they might have in the pandemic, we should focus on things like the Wadsworth Labs at the health department. They should they should get some attention. All right, very wise words. All right, Bill, I thank you for your time again. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, I'll uh, make sure I make that suggestion box to the governor's office about renaming a street in your honor there out in, uh, in the capital. <laughs> you so. can make it the Empire, Empire Center Board. All right, that works for me, too. That works for me, too. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. I thank you again. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the great Bill Hammond. Uh, we'll uh, catch up with you another time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Bill.